Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you or on your phone, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, we are, this is where we find ourselves in the next, um, just in the next little bit of Revelation as we make our way throughout. Um, just a, a bit of a recap. This is a letter written to the seven churches in Asia. Uh, this letter is a revealing of things that are and, a thing, and of things that are yet to come. Uh, these things in this letter are disclosed by the Lord Jesus uh, to the Apostle John who was imprisoned on the island of Patmos on account of the Word of God and his testimony of Jesus. These very words that we will read today are the words of the one who was, who is, and the one who is to come. So I'm going to take you guys through this the way that I study uh, because it's helpful for me that way. And I hope, hope that you find it helpful as well. So we'll read a bit, stop a bit, continue on for a bit, check out another section of the text. So uh, here we go. Chapter, uh, chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Mount Zion is God's mountain. Throughout the Bible, you hear things like this. On, uh, on, Mount, on God's mountain stands the Lamb. On Mount Zion, where God rests or sets his king, where God has made himself known as a fortress, where God rests forever, where he satisfies the poor with bread, where priests are clothed with salvation, where God's saints, they shout for joy. On God's mountain, lifted high above all others, we find the Lamb. The Lamb who, according to John loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. We find Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is God incarnate, born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life on behalf of a sinful people, who fulfilled the law of God perfectly for those chosen by God and too weak to do it themselves. The one who was nailed to the cross, as the perfect sacrificial substitute for an imperfect people. The one who died the death to sin and rose again on the third day, overwhelming hell and death. The one who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who ever lives to intercede on behalf of those who put their trust in His saving work, whether rich or poor, whether in the in crowd or the ostracized. He, Jesus Christ, our magnificent Savior, promises to come again to vindicate the righteous and to rid the world of evil and to recreate the world with, uh, where God and man live in loving, eternal union. This is the Lamb. This is the one who stands on Mount Zion. This is glorious. And this is even cooler. The one who, look at, look at this, here we go. Mount Zion stood, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him, I want you to make note of that, with Him, 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And so if you remember from chapter 7, 
We've already been through who the 144,000 are. And so John doesn't seem to focus on who they are um, this time around. He seems to have a different focus. Uh, he, seems to, um, he seems to focus on that where uh, those who stand with the Lamb, uh, they stand with Him um, in purpose and in position. He focuses on what's true of them. They stand with Him in purpose and in position. They share a love of holiness and faithfulness to God. And they stand with Him, not because they're just good or great people or born sinless, but they stand with Him because of the work that God has done in their hearts. He has redeemed them, and so they stand with Him. Let's look. Let's continue on in uh, verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of, th like of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Or if you read the NLT, it says, These are the spiritually undefiled, for they are pure as virgins. They are those who have uh, been washed with the water of the word. They haven't been led astray. They have kept to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. They have believed and held to the one true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is these who follow the Lamb. It is these who follow the Lamb. If you have a toddler or have had young kids, you know what this means. You go to the restroom and there's little fingers coming up under the door. Or they just come on in. They do what they want. They follow you wherever you go. You get this. And so these 144,000, they follow the Lamb. They learn from Him. They share purpose with the Lamb. And they share in position with the Lamb. They follow the Lamb and they follow none other. They follow their shepherd. They follow none other. They have been called by the Lamb. They have been chosen by the Lamb. And they have remained faithful to the Lamb. Continuing on, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no, uh, no lie was found, for they are blameless. In Jude, it says, presented with great joy by the Lamb before the presence of His glory. These are God's people. They have a stamp on their foreheads, the father's, the lamb's father's name and the lamb's name. They, they have his stamp. This it denotes possession, ownership. I remember in elementary school, the times that I've gotten in trouble for not putting my name on my test because the teacher couldn't grade it. She didn't know whose it was. These people have God's name stamped on their head. They are God's people. They are none other. They belong to none other. And so, them being God's people, He finds great joy in presenting them before the presence of His glory. 
They share His love for holiness and they share in His faith, uh, love for faithfulness to God. They stand with Him as a result of the work of God in their hearts. And I asked, could the same be said of you? Do you share in purpose with the Lamb? Do you love holiness? Do you love faithfulness to God? Or um, do you expect to have the Lamb as Savior and yet live without Him as your Lord? Do you expect to live however your heart desires and at the end of the day have Christ as your Savior? Verse 6. Then John turns and he says, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. This angel flies over and proclaims, Repent, fear God, give Him glory. The hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who has made all things. Repent, believe the gospel, for God keeps His promises. He will judge. He is righteous. And I do believe that some repent. Moving on to verse 8, it says, Another angel, a second, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, though there is great horror and great terror in an hour of judgment, there is also great relief as the one who has led many astray with all sorts of temptations has been conquered. Babylon has fallen. And if you read the verses in Isaiah 21, 1 through 9, um, you see the author, you can see the, the buildup, this tension that builds up. The one who has longed to be uh, out from under the dominion of Babylon. He says, my heart staggers within me. My loins are filled with anguish. The twilight that I longed for turned into trembling. Meaning he was horrified at the judgment that was about to come. It made him tremble. And yet the one who is writing says, I was told to listen diligently when I see Horses riding and pairs of riders coming. He says, listen diligently. Listen very diligently. And what does he hear? He hears Babylon, the great, has fallen. Fallen is Babylon. And so though there is this terror that we feel when we think of an hour of judgment, we can rejoice if we are Christ's. Because the enemy has been conquered. Do you feel the allure of the enemy? Do you feel the allure of the things of this world? It's empty promises of pleasure. It's empty promises of comfort. It's empty promises of security. 
Do you feel the draw of this world? And let me say with Paul, do not present your members as, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do not be led astray by the allure of the world. Verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his head or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name now, I think the, the, the history and the, um, I guess if you want to say the biblical lineage or the connections that you can make in the scripture to this mark have been very interesting to study. Very interesting to study. Because I grew up being paranoid about getting a vaccine that had a microchip in it or uh, receiving a mark that meant that I was the devils and, or the beasts and that I was going to hell. But let's just look at this. I think you'll find this interesting. And I think you'll find it very interesting that the net that this cast is much broader than someone receiving a vaccine with a microchip in it. It's much broader. So, Mark background. In Exodus chapter 13, the uh, people of God, the Israelites, have been delivered from Egyptian slavery. Um, they have instituted Passover and they're about to institute the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It is a week-long feast, I believe, that they cannot use any leaven. That leaven can't be in their home. That they can't, they can't use leaven at all. And so, when these families of Israelites are making this, these meals, and they're not using the leaven, and their sons ask them, why are we doing this? This is what God tells them to say in Exodus chapter 13. He says, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then he goes on to say, it shall be a sign on your hand and as a, memor a memorial between your eyes. Does that sound familiar? It says, you shall tell your sons of deliverance. This sign is initially a sign of one who has been delivered out from under the dominion of a tyrant. It is a sign of one who has been delivered by God from the dominion of another, of a wicked one. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we went through the Shema. You remember, before we went through Revelation, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
And of this, too, God says, it shall be as frontlets between your eyes and as a mark on your hand. And so whereas in the first case, with the bread on their hands and the, mem the memorial of God's deliverance in their minds, it was a sign of deliverance. And here in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, it is a sign of love. It is a sign of love. It is a sign on your hands, meaning it's a sign of love for God in what you do. We love the Lord our God with our hearts, with our affections, where we make our decisions. We love the Lord our God with our minds. We filter our thoughts and our decision-making through a filter of love for God. We love the Lord our God with our soul. That is the, the animating energy of our body. We use our efforts to glorify God, to show that we love God, and we love God with our strength. Again, with our efforts. And so this mark throughout the Bible is a sign of whose you are. And it shows itself not in a physical mark, but in a way that you live. In a way that you live. And so this mark doesn't seem to me, to be a physical mark, but more of a, a way of living that displays a worship of uh, and a worshipful submission to any other than the one true God. That is what this mark is. It is a worshipful submission to culture. It is a worshipful submission to government. It is a worshipful submission to any other than the Lord God Almighty. This devotion shows whose you are. And so if you're a believer in this room, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, but you don't have an actual seal on your body. And so we could say the same for those who have this mark of the beast. It is a way in which they live that shows whose they are. What does your life look like? What does your life say about whose you are? In the way that you do things, the way that you think, in the way that you live. John's audience would have made this association as they faced losing their, actually losing their lives at the hands of Domitian, who was the emperor at that time, his persecutors. Domitian at that time demanded to be called Lord and God. There are letters that he had written that were stated, Our Lord and our Master and our God bids this be done. And so you can see why John's, you'll see that John's call carries so much weight. Do you find yourself living in such a way that, that displays a mark like this? And even, even the emperor afterwards would agree, I believe, with me. He says, uh, in a letter from a man named Pliny, uh, or a letter to a man named Pliny, if any of you are uh, about to have babies or have, know people who are having babies, you can put that one on the list uh, for names. That's a pretty good one, Pliny. Um, so in this letter to Pliny, he writes, of Christians, he says, we shouldn't hunt them down. 
there's no need to hunt them down. But if we find them and they are convicted, then they should be punished. But if we find one, a man, who says he's not a Christian, he says, then he must prove it. And he says he must prove it by his conduct. And then he goes on further to say, namely, by worshiping our gods. By worshiping our gods. And this is the culture that, that the churches in the provinces of, in, in Asia find themselves in. And it's not just that they had a problem with Jesus. They didn't mind it if you worship Jesus. But you had to worship Jesus and their gods and the Roman gods. And so do you find yourself being pushed or pulled or trying to be swayed to a Jesus among others attitude? I think this, there's hints of this all over our culture. It's fine that you worship Jesus. Just don't, don't come around here with your Jesus. It's fine that you worship Jesus. Just don't say that He's the only way. Just don't say that He is the one true God. Say that He's a good teacher, a good prophet, who had good moral things to say. This is what they're facing. This is, I mean, this looks like what we're facing. And so, thankfully, the text did the work for me because the application is the same. Listen to John's call in verse 12. It says, here is a call for endurance for the, of the saints. Here is a call for endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. John effectively says, don't trade your eternal treasure. Don't trade Christ for momentary comfort, for momentary pleasures, for momentary security that is fading fast. Don't trade Jesus for the world. He says, don't love this life. Love God. And literally, he is saying to the people in this time, don't love your actual life. Love God. Don't lay down your faith to not be killed. Keep the faith. And so I say the same to you. Keep the faith. Guard it. Guard your faith. Keep it as if it's a precious treasure. Retain it. Observe the commandments of God. Obey the commandments of God. Possess faith in Jesus. Keep it. Endure, endure, endure to the very end. Don't lay down your faith. Christ is the only way. He is the only way. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. What you do follows you. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud 
and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has, the, has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. And I, reading that, can't help but to see the distinction that John makes between these two harvests. One is harvested as a grain harvest. The other is a wine grape harvest. And he calls them the vines of the earth. It almost sounds derogatory in my mind. These are those who have been drunk with the passion of the sexual immorality of Babylon. These are the ones who have been drunk on the sexual immorality of the culture. These are the ones who have been idolaters. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 16,000 stadia. Friends, Christ has sowed the good gospel seed, and it will be harvested. How will you be found when the time of harvest comes? How will you be found? Will you have the promised Holy Spirit as your seal? Or will you have a mark that looks exactly like a culture who hates God? It's important to know what this says um, about being outside the city, those who are outside the city. And you can see this in Revelation 21, uh, verse uh, 22 through 27. It is speaking of the new Jerusalem where God and man live together. Uh, says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light the, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But listen to this. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Ben, if you want to come back up. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. And so how will you be found at the time of harvest? 
Believer, I think this is uh, a great call to endure. Christ is your greatest treasure. He is much greater than momentary comfort, much greater than momentary pleasure. And so let's press on in the faith, accepting no other gospel. Christ alone. Unbeliever. Would you escape wrath? Repent. Believe the gospel. Trust in Christ's saving work. Rest from your efforts to save yourself. Would you believe?